Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, raising awareness and inspiring action for personal and planetary health with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Adelberg. And I'm Emma Strutt. And welcome to episode 33. Uh, As always, please remember to subscribe and share the podcast and buy us a few coffees while you're at it. Uh, I think we've got a first today, Emma, a guest from a particular part of Australia. Um, We've never been there. Want to though, definitely want to. Um, So today we're joined by Dr. Jack Orty. He's a lecturer at the University of Tasmania and he's investigating the innate immune system with a particular focus on how inflammation can contribute to disease. Jack has had an absolutely fascinating research career thus far and currently has a number of really interesting projects on the go, including how microplastics affect human health and the health of wildlife and also the link between inflammation and Alzheimer's disease. So lots to cover today. We'll jump straight in. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to jumping into some uh, science. Now, Jack, yeah, we were just saying offline, you're uh, in your own little bubble, COVID-free bubble at the moment in Tasmania, Uh, but you do have a link to New Zealand as well. So let's start off by telling us perhaps a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in Tasmania. Um, well, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting journey. I, um, uh, I went to Kashmir High in Christchurch, um, and then I, I fell in love with science from a very young age. They actually thought I couldn't read when I was about seven years old, but it turned out they just hadn't given me anything interesting. And they gave me a science book, and I couldn't put it down. I was reading science facts for the rest of my life. So uh, I kind of always wanted to be a scientist. There was a dark period there where I wanted to be a geologist, um, but I pushed through that. It was a rough period in my teenage teenagehood and uh, landed on biology which is the greatest subject of all and um, I basically I did my PhD at the University of Otago um, on quite a weird topic I was I was researching um, is there any uh, therapeutic properties in marijuana like substances that could be used to treat stroke in babies um, so it's quite a complicated uh, series of things basically marijuana suppresses your immune system perhaps inflammation makes stroke worse so maybe it could be used but unfortunately my, the results of my study was no it didn't seem to help that much um, but from there I sort of had um, a background foundation of inflammation and how that can contribute to tissue damage. So we all know what inflammation is, right? It's when you roll your ankle, it swells up. That's your immune system rushing into the tissue damage to um, to try clean up the tissue damage or perhaps an infection. And that's what inflammation is, and it's normally good. But there are certain things that are going on that might contribute to the disease and make it worse, and that's sort of what I was researching during my PhD. I then sort of researched that same topic in sepsis, which is a whole body infection as a way to think about it. And then I went on to research it in Alzheimer's disease, which is a kind of dementia. And I did that research at the University of Manchester in the UK, and that's a fantastic place. Now, anyone who's a scientist knows it's incredibly hard to make tenure, and um, (laughs) Manchester um, is a beautiful place, it's amazing, but my Kiwi spirit was getting slowly crushed by the density of humans, uh, the lack of nature, the amount of pollution and stuff, so um, I was looking for jobs back in Australia and New Zealand, and this wonderful opportunity at the University of Tasmania opened up, where I could start to research, build my own research group, and head in any direction I wanted to, and so I jumped 
did that opportunity and now I'm at uh, the University of Tasmania and absolutely loving it. It's such a dream job, honestly, to, to be out here. Brilliant. Um, now, one of your study areas is the role of inflammation in Alzheimer's, as you've just mentioned. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia and the rates are on the rise, unfortunately. It's a leading cause of death and disability in Australia and a lot of countries around the world, including New Zealand. Um, can we start off with a quick history lesson maybe into how Alzheimer's was discovered and what the condition's all about? Yeah, so there was a German physician right around the, the turn of the 20th century named Alois Alzheimer's. And he worked in an asylum um, in Frankfurt. And he stumbled across this, um, you know, relatively young person, 52 years old, this woman, um, who had a very peculiar set of symptoms. Rather than just general poor brain function, you know, just general failure of the brain, it seemed to be specifically in the memory in this woman. So she was forgetting stuff, but she could do all the other things. And Eloise Alzheimer's noticed this and thought it was quite weird. She didn't drink. She didn't have any other conditions. It was just this weird sort of peculiar symptom. So he followed her, her, her symptoms throughout her care, and they got worse. So the memory decline occurred, but then her language um, started to decline as well to the point that she couldn't speak. And then essentially she became so frail that she died. Um, roughly about five years after um, Eloise Alzheimer's first noticed, and he documented her decline. So then he did an autopsy to see what was going on with this person, and he found a peculiar thing in her brain, which was these things called uh, uh, plaques, which are really just protein aggregates um, in her brain. Now, what is, a, what is a protein aggregate? Well, proteins uh, uh, do everything in your body, pretty much. They are the machines of your body. When your muscles contract, that's proteins. But also when you're thinking, that is prote proteins opening and closing in your neurons in your brain. Proteins do everything. And they're normally floating around the liquid, right? So an egg has a lot of protein. When you crack it open, a lot of it, it's all just floating around. It's still a liquid. Now, when you actually cook an egg, the proteins actually begin to aggregate and they become insoluble. They don't dissolve in water and they form tough clumps. You know, if you overcook egg and then you go to wash the dishes, it's not like the egg then dissolves in the water when you're washing the dishes. It stays as this insoluble clump. That's a protein aggregate. And so Eloise Alzheimer's found these protein aggregates in the brain of this woman and they got they became known as amyloid plaques because that's the specific sticky protein that was forming those clumps in those plaques and so uh, he noticed this and he said well this must be what's causing that disease um, he also noticed a couple of other things that there were clumps uh, of smaller proteins forming inside the brain cells themselves and then another important point he noticed that around those protein clumps were non-neuronal cells and he didn't know what they were he just said they don't look like brain cells they're a weird kind of cell what what's going on he didn't really know and it wasn't until like 90 years later that we really cottoned on that those cells around those plaques were actually inflammatory immune cells so there was inflammation going on in the brains of these people now, we think that these clumps form quite early, right around the age of 50, but then typically in Alzheimer's disease, the symptoms don't set in until um, 70, 75, 80 years old. So it is often found in the elderly. And so you can imagine there's inflammation going on in the brains of these patients for 20 years, 25 years. 
that's probably not a good thing for your brain. You know, we put ice on our ankle when we roll it playing rugby on the weekend. Um, imagine that sort of uh, uh, inflammatory process going on for 20, 25 years in the brain of these Alzheimer's disease. And so what I research is how are those immune cells that are reacting to those sticky protein aggregates in the brain contributing to Alzheimer's disease? And what would you say would be some of the key causes of this inflammatory response in the brain? I mean, that's a great that's a great point. So, where do the plaques come from? Is question number one. And um, and why are we having an inflammatory response to these plaques? Is question number two. Right. So, question number one is a million dollar question. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of Alzheimer's disease is caused by a rare genetic condition, right? So it's inheritable, it's genetic, but that's a tiny, tiny uh, percentage of uh, Alzheimer's disease. The rest are what we call sporadic, which is basically we can't predict who's gonna get it or what's going on, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, and so why those plaques are forming is a, is a, honestly, it's a billion dollar question. There are billions of dollars of research going into that right now. Um, and then why do we have an inflammatory response to it? Well, one of the answers to that came from an interesting study around dyes. Now, <laughs> dyes sound boring, right? Dyeing your clothes. But the history of dyes is absolutely fascinating. It's kind of how we discovered antibiotics. It's how we discovered loads of things. But Dyes bind to some things but not others, right? That's one of the key things about dyes, and it makes it really easy to see things. Now, we use a dye to spot bacteria. It's called Congo Red, and it's a, it's a dye that stains bacteria, so then we can spot bacteria in tissue. But what's interesting is the dye also stains these protein aggregates in the brain, these plaques. And so it seems that there is something molecularly similar between those plaques and bacteria. And we're wondering, has our immune system confused the two? Is our immune system thinking that the plaques are actually bacteria? Now, one of the fascinating things about the immune system that I don't think a lot of people know is it produces bleach. Um, your immune system literally pumps out bleach into your tissue. And it does it for the exact same reason we use bleach in our toilets, it's to sterilize the area. So our immune system tries to sterilize the area kill any bugs, and then it can reset and we can start to repair the tissue. So um, if our immune system has confused these plaques for bacteria, it's going to spray out bleach to try kill the bacteria. And do you think bleach in the human brain for 25 years is going to be good for the brain? So um, th it's a really interesting uh, question about how the immune system might have been uh, made a mistake and that might be contributing to the disease like that. Okay. Um, and in regards to risk factors, you've just mentioned, of course, there's going to be factors you can't change, like your age and certain genetics. Um, but there's several modifiable risk factors as well, things like physical activity levels and diet. And on that, would you mind telling us quickly about your research into the role of zinc and Alzheimer's? Right. Yes. Yeah, so basically, if if you look at any risk factor for Alzheimer's disease that contributes it, it does one of two things. It either does something to your blood vessels and potentially reduces blood flow, clots, that kind of thing. So smoking, um, cholesterol, uh, obesity, these are all risk factors because um, they reduce your blood flow and your blood flow in your brain is important for clearing rubbish out of your brain 
rubbish like these protein aggregates, right? Or, the, or these proteins. So if you have poor blood flow in your brain, you're not clearing the waste products in the brain and so they can start to aggregate and build up. But another one is inflammation. Obesity causes inflammation, smoking causes inflammation, infections cause inflammation, and these are all risk factors for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, type 2 diabetes, um, you know, even cholesterol. But one of the ones I was looking in was zinc deficiency. Now, zinc deficiency is the most common malnutrition in the world. About 2 billion people are zinc deficient. Um, and it, its risk goes up as you age, similar to Alzheimer's disease. And that's because our ability to absorb nutrients declines. There's a really famous unethical study that they did in the 60s. All, all the studies in the 60s were done by sort of cowboys where they uh, got a bunch of people and they sort of uh, uh, only fed them gruel and like a paste. And in that gruel was uh, a particular kind of zinc that we could detect. And so they fed that to these people and um, elderly people and young people and then they looked at all the zinc that came out in their fecal matter and urine and from that they could deduce how much they were absorbing and what they found was the elderly were absorbing half as much zinc as their younger equivalents. So the elderly had a huge risk of zinc deficiency. Now one thing zinc deficiency does and we don't, this is what my research was involved in, was we know it sort of makes you A, immune suppressed but B, inflammatory. And that seems counterintuitive until you understand that the human body actually has kind of two immune systems. It has this sort of reactive, non-specific immune system that we call the innate immune system. And what that does is it does things like spray bleach. And bleach will kill everything, right? So it's non-specific. It will kill everything, including our cells, which is one of the problems of the innate immune system. Then we have another immune system called the adaptive immune system and that has memory. So when you vaccinate, you are training your adaptive immune system to remember the infection that it's been exposed to. And so now when it comes across COVID-19, if you've had the vaccine, it goes, I recognize that, I know exactly how to kill it, right? Now, zinc deficiency seems to suppress the adaptive immune system, that good memory immune system that has those specific tools to knock out pathogens. And so our innate immune system seems to become more inflammatory to try and compensate for it, right? We need to bump up our inflammation because the other part of our immune system, that memory immune system is suppressed. And so I looked at those mechanisms and basically I found that there's uh, a particular um, whew, receptor. What is a receptor? It's a basically a way the immune system can smell the extracellular uh, space, the fluid in your body. Your immune system's always smelling, and it's it's literally the same method, right? It's a it's the receptors on your immune cells are sniffing the uh, fluid in your body, and I found that when you are zinc deficient, one of those receptors that activates the immune system because it can smell a pathogen becomes super sensitive, and it can even spot spontaneously activate. So that seems to be one of the mechanisms by which your innate immune system becomes more inflammatory when you're zinc deficient. And so we essentially showed using cellular models and animal models, and I realize that's a tricky subject that we may not want to touch on, that if you make things zinc deficient, they become more inflammatory, and that contributes to Alzheimer's disease. It accelerates the decline of it, and it increases your risk of it. We also showed that using human data, that people who are taking zinc supplements seem to be less likely to get Alzheimer's disease and seem to decline slower. 
um, when they did get Alzheimer's disease. So it is an interesting one of those, it's yet another diet or, or, or lifestyle intervention where essentially the motto for all of Alzheimer's research is be healthy to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. And one of those things is don't be zinc deficient, ensure that you're getting it. Now, I would always say, particularly because this is going out to people, don't go out and buy a bunch of zinc supplements and stuff them into your face because you know you can overdose on zinc and it's important to not self-diagnose and self-medicate. What I would say is eat healthy. <laughs> um, and there are lots of good foods out there, um, uh, seafood and nuts, and um, a, a small amount of red meat, these are really high in zinc. And so go out and eat as healthy as you can. Eat, eat your colors is one of those famous sayings, right? Eat a range of colors. Don't just eat beige food um, to get those nutrients in to make sure you're healthy. You mean more is not always better? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> An interesting thing about this, like, so there is zinc overdose, and so some people zinc overdose, and one of the most common forms of zinc overdose is the glue that you glue your dentures in are full of zinc, and some people like the taste of the glue to glue your, your, your dentures in, and so they overdose on zinc by sucking on their dentures to suck the, the oh glue gosh. out of it. But yeah, so... <laughs> Don't overdose on anything. Yeah. I think we just found a soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> now, just, just, just staying on the, the, the topic of Alzheimer's just briefly here, and, and I'm probably going to put you on the spot because I appreciate this is a, a whole kind of different line. But what are your thoughts on concussion then being, a, uh, I guess, another cause of, of the inflammatory response? Because there's a lot of research now happening in, in contact sports like rugby. Um, and the, the the later effects it has, and not so much later, you know, mid-30s, early 40s even now, we're starting to see some of those effects. Have you got any thoughts on that, on, on the effects of head knocks and so on? Uh, like, it, it's an absolute no-brainer that this would contribute to your Alzheimer's disease risk as well as all dementias. So many dementias seem to have this inflammatory component. There's one specifically described for what you're talking about, it's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, CTE, um, and it it is a big issue. Like, it's it's a real tough thing because sport is so entrenched in our culture with rugby and um, you know NFL, and you know there's a lot of benefits to it. You know, you're getting cardiovascular exercise, you're getting community, um, and but it does come with this risk if you're constantly getting your head knocked. And I certainly, uh, I, I I don't know, I've got a glass jaw. I used to get knocked out regularly when I was playing rugby, and particularly when I tried to dabble in rugby league because you stand <laughs> you stand 20 meters apart and then you sprint at each other. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the interesting facts about this is if you look at NFL, when the front linemen, you know, those big guys at the front, when they started, they, the average weight was around about 75 kilograms. And now the average weight is around about 140 kilograms. But these 140 kilogram guys can still cover 100 meters in under 12 seconds. And so the forces you're talking about is phenomenal. And so I don't know, like, it's it's a question for society you know um horse riding kills people uh driving in your car kills people and are we prepared to pay the cost to have that part of our culture and that part of our lifestyle um in there and can we raise awareness should we be wearing headgear does headgear actually help because nfl 
because they wear helmets, they have more helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact, which actually doesn't reduce um, the forces that your brains are experiencing because it's all about your brain sloshing around inside the skull and helmets don't seem to reduce that. If anything, they promote clashing head first. There's famous examples of that in boxing and when it was bare knuckle boxing, there was often less um, strikes to the head because you could damage your hands and um, so there were more body shots and the round would be over quick. You wouldn't have 12 rounds of people slogging each other in the head like you do with boxing now when they wear these big padded gloves. You would have you know, a few rounds and eventually someone would get knocked out. Maybe that's better. So maybe not wearing helmets is better. And so I think we just need loads of research into this. Um, but I think it's, it's one of those things that it's almost beyond doubt that causing inflammation in your brain will contribute to your risk of dementia and head injuries does do cause inflammation in your brain. So I think it's almost a no-brainer on that one. So if it's um, all about inflammation, you've just told me I can't take zinc supplements, but can I just pop a couple of ibuprofen and reduce my inflammation? Yeah, so this is uh, actually another part of my uh, research. So. I've, I've just told you a whole bunch about how the immune system is bad, but the immune system is also good. One of the things the immune system does is it runs into the tissue and it gobbles up the damage, right? We have these cells called macrophage, which means big eaters, and they go in and they eat the bad stuff, right? They, they clear the tissue. How does the damage get out of there? It's your immune system. So if you suppress all of the immune system, uh, you're actually suppressing the good things it does as well as the bad things it does, and that might not be a good thing. In fact, there was a very famous uh, clinical trial on this. It was called the CRASH study, and it was looking at um, a single head trauma event, and that's why it was called CRASH. So if you, if you get punched in the head, or if you're in a car crash, and you end up in a coma, and your brain is massively inflamed, it will swell up, and it's inside a skull, and so the pressure builds up, and that pressure is really damaging, and the inflammatory process is really damaging. So what we do, what we did, was give steroid anti-inflammatories. These are the absolute uh, lights out switch to your immune system. It turns off your immune system. It will, your immune system stops if you give these steroids. And you'll see the pressure inside the skull drop and everything seems to be cheery. But a, but a doctor and a scientist said, have we ever put this through a clinical trial? We just do it and we haven't tested it. So they managed to get the funding and the momentum to do a clinical trial. Now, the story goes that many doctors didn't want to join the clinical trial because to them, it was so obvious that the steroids were helping in this clinical trial. But what they found was when they finally did the placebo clinical trial was that the steroid group died more often. In fact, 3.8% more, which is a huge number. That's an absolute value, not a relative value. So that's a giant number of people died more. And it's because they were probably stopping the good things that the immune system was doing as well as the bad things that we were doing. So ibuprofen, <laughs> that's a, the, back to this, right? So um, part of my research was investigating, are there some drugs that people are currently taking for other conditions that seem to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease? And what I found was ibuprofen doesn't. Um, it doesn't seem to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. But a certain subset of drugs similar to ibuprofen do. Um, one's called mefenamic acid and one's called diclovenac. Now, I've got to say, these are correlational studies. It's not a proper clinical trial, so the conclusions aren't 100%. 
But what I found was people who took those drugs were less likely to get Alzheimer's disease and the Alzheimer's disease declined slower. Um, and when I investigated those drugs, I found that they specifically turned off that smell receptor I was talking about with the zinc. So they turn off just one part of the immune response to Alzheimer's disease, to those plaques, and it was the damaging part. But they left the normal good parts, the eating up the bad stuff parts. So um, we did a whole bunch of cell experiments and again animal experiments to show that that human data was probably due to these processes going on. Now, these drugs come with side effects, so definitely don't go out and take them again. Um, and we need those clinical trials to really confirm those things. Um, and, and I'm currently working on that to try to get a clinical trial underway for these drugs. But uh, again, it does seem that certain drugs targeting certain inflammatory responses could be very therapeutic in Alzheimer's disease. Now, let's move on a little bit. I mean, not away from inf inflammation, but um, let's now bring in uh, microplastics. And, you know, the conversation around plastic in general, that's quite big in the community, plastic in our oceans, the effect it has on sea life. We know we talk a lot about PCBs, but we don't really talk enough about the inflammation or the inflammatory impact it can have on the body so shall we kick off with that yeah what what does microplastics do to us so um uh, i don't i don't have a tv but when i go on conference i stay in a hotel and a hotel has the tv and i because i haven't watched tv i suddenly get addicted to it so it, i was at a conference and at two in the morning i was watching a david Attenborough. um a David Attenborough documentary on microplastics, and he said, no one knows what it does to the body. And I said, I bet you I know exactly what it does to the body because the plaques in your brain in Alzheimer's disease act like particulates. They're insoluble, and they are, so they don't float around in the water. They're like a, a small particle. And so the receptor on the immune cell that can sniff out that particle, I thought, probably sniffs out the plastic. Now, I did what scientists call a Friday afternoon experiment, and that's when you're just sort of mucking around, having a bit of fun in the lab. And so I had immune cells in a dish, and um, I took a Swiss Army nail file to uh, a piece of plastic to make my own microplastics. And I put it on the immune cells, and I said, I wonder if it's going to activate my receptor and cause inflammation. And it activated the receptor massively. In fact, in every experiment, we have what's called the positive control. A positive control is something that we know will cause inflammation. Well, the microplastics induced more inflammation than the positive control. They totally blew out my experiment, um, and it caused massive inflammation. And so, I was like, okay, I need something a bit more scientific than a Swiss army knife to generate my microplastics. So I contacted uh, an engineering facility that um, actually makes aeroplane parts because they can um, uh, mill uh, material at a, at a micron scale. So they can generate me microplastics. And we'd started testing microplastics for how inflammatory they were. And that some of them were massively inflammatory and some of them uh, weren't, which is quite interesting. Nylon, for example, was hugely inflammatory. Um, and we investigated how this happened and what can it do. Um, we, we actually found that it doesn't seem to do a huge amount to the gut, maybe a little bit, but your gut seems to be 
perfectly designed to deal with things like this. When you think about it, we eat sand accidentally when we eat oysters. Um, we, you know, we um, it's full of bacteria. <laughs> you know, it, our gut and uh, one of one of our things our gut does is it sheds its lining regularly. Um, so our gut seemed to be relatively okay, but our lungs did not. So we did experiments involving uh, breathing in plastics and it caused massive inflammation and our lungs are very sensitive. Um, now there have been numerous studies time and time again that show that the dust in the air is full of microplastics. When you take off your synthetic clothing, um, it, it's, it, it creates an aerosol of microplastics that we then go on to breathe in. Now we haven't done the human research and we need to do that human research. I'm applying for funding to do that right now. but. Um, there's definitely an inflammatory response going on. And just to give you an idea about how potentially bad this is, that receptor is also, that inflammatory smell receptor is also activated by asbestos. And that's one of the mechanisms by which we think asbestos causes lung cancer is by inducing chronic inflammation. If, if there's ever chronic inflammation, you end up with bleach, for example, which can be very damaging to DNA. And if you damage DNA, you increase mutations. And if you increase mutations, you increase your risk of cancer. So people with hepatitis, which is a viral infection of the liver, have way higher risk of getting liver cancer. People who smoke have inflammation in their lungs. They have way higher risk of lung cancer. So the plastics that are building up in our body, and one thing that really concerns me is that plastics are designed to not break down. That's why we use them, right? Um, you know, if if a drink bottle dissolved in water, the bottle would disappear, right? So we make plastic bottles so they don't dissolve in water, they don't break down. That's the benefit of plastic. That's why we use it. So our body won't be able to break down this particulate. Will we ever be able to clear it? So there's lots of research about diesel particles, for example, um, getting into our lungs, causing massive inflammation. And this causes ripple effects. Like even, you know, there have been studies that show that air pollution lowers your IQ during development. So it actually um, can, you know, have really bad effects on the whole body. Um, but diesel slowly breaks down in the lungs and eventually you can clear it. Plastics I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Um, and we need to do that research. So it's something very scary. And one thing I'd like to say, like I've just had a baby. Um, he's now one year old, but it still feels like yesterday. And we went out to buy baby clothes. It's almost impossible to find non-plastic baby clothes. They're all made out of nylon and polyester. I would like to see that label say plastic. I think calling it nylon and polyester is kind of hiding what it is. It's plastic. We've got plastic clothes and we're putting them on our baby. The carpets are plastic. The, the bedding is plastic. And so we spent ages trying to hunt out and shout out to New Zealand. Merino, <laughs> Merino wool is what we use for trying, trying for, ev for, for everything because wool is a biological material. It will be able to break down. We evolved with wool. You know, you know the human, humans have domesticated sheep 10,000 years ago or so. So we've evolved with wool. We have not been exposed to plastic throughout our history. Our body does not know how to deal with that. Now, talking of clothing gar garments, the most fashionable item now, face masks. Yeah. So we're putting those directly right up against our nose and mouth. Yeah. And if it's not 100% cotton or, or, I don't yeah. know, uh, you know either linen or, or anything like that, I mean, mainly there's going to be plastic in there of some form. So yep. 
that is actually okay you might reduce perhaps a few percentage chance you know of, of contracting you know passing it on the, the COVID, but you're actually causing now another issue we're inhaling plastic yeah i mean obviously <laughs> This is a tough one because the more acute problem right now, the one in, in the next two years, what are you going to die of? COVID-19, much more so than plastic exposure. Yeah. We haven't yet even confirmed that plastic does the same thing in humans. The, my research was done in animal models. So we do need to look into that. Um, what I would say, and this is certainly what I did, was I used paper filters. They totally exist. And cotton masks. So you can put, um, uh, you can put quite small paper filters that can filter out very small particles and they slot in behind into this cotton mask that you can wear over your face and that's certainly what I do and it took me forever to, to find them but I would I would recommend hunting them out they exist and um, they you know another problem we're seeing is that uh, they're now washing up these masks are washing up in our oceans on islands in remote areas and they're not gonna they're not gonna break down in the ocean so I would t totally recommend paper filters and a reusable washable cotton mask. Get a couple so you can wash them. Um, but And then those paper filters can be composted and you can buy more paper filters. And that's definitely the way I go for, for my mask when I, whenever I have to wear a mask. Yeah, and, and of course, it's not just about human health impacts when it comes to plastic. You've just mentioned, you know, these masks washing up on beaches and whatnot. Um, yeah. I think everyone has seen the images of, you know, like seabird carcasses filled with plastic or turtles confusing plastic bags with jellyfish um, or sharks getting caught up in nylon fishing nets, etc. Um, but something that people might not think about is you've just recently published a fascinating paper that showed like mm. the accumulation of plastics in beach sediment essentially causes temperature fluctuations. So how is that impacting the ecosystem? Uh, I mean... The thing is, is it's almost easy to be a plastic researcher because you can just measure anything and plastic is making it worse, right? And so we, um, uh, plastic is washing up on the oceans, uh, washing up on beaches all throughout the world, sometimes even the most remote islands. Henderson Island, for example, um, my good friend and collaborator, Dr. Jennifer Lavers, spent three months there counting how much plastic gets dumped on that. She actually missed her wedding because the boat didn't come. <laughs> but... Uh, it's in the middle of the Pacific. It's one of the most remote islands you can see. And the, the beaches just get plastic dumped on it all the time. Even like famous islands like the Maldives. Um, there's a beautiful place for the rich people. But then if you walk over to the other side of the island, plastic is piling up. Um, and, you know, beautiful places in Scotland like Aberdeen has this huge tidal zone. So the water comes in kilometres and goes out kilometres. And it just leaves a trail of plastic every tide, right? So plastic is building up all over the place. Now, one of the things we thought about as researchers was... Um, what's warmer being in your uh, uh, they call it a polytunnel being in your glass house in your garden or being standing in the garden and obviously we kind of know you know standing in a glass house under a transparent piece of plastic is warmer because it traps that infrared um, heat it traps that heat inside the glass house right and we wondered 
is plastic pollution doing that on a beach? So we measured the temperature fluctuations and we found these peculiar results that um, during the middle of the day, the temperature of the beach under a, a, a very thin layer of plastic, just a scattering of plastic, can dramatically increase that uh, peak temperature um, during the middle of the day by about two and a half degrees. And then really surprisingly, it lowered the temperature at night by about one and a half degrees. So the minimum temperature drops. The reason why this is a huge issue is species evolve to operate in particular niches, which is a niche is just a bunch of attributes which an organism fits into, right? So um, uh, humans without clothing, for example, cannot live in Norway. We have a very specific niche if we don't wear clothing. And so animals have a very specific niche. And so if we suddenly change the dial the different parameters, the, the temperature, maximum temperature, the minimum temperature, we can put serious strain on species that are already under strain because of global warming with the temperature increasing throughout that. So it's a double nail in the coffin, you know, for some of these species. And um, like really interesting interactions might be happening. Like there is a dragon, which is a kind of a lizard in Australia uh, who lays its egg just under the sand. Um, and that the gender, the sex of that lizard depends on the temperature that it experiences. And so at a certain elevated temperature, they all become male, which is a huge problem if we're elevating the temperature through global warming and through layers of plastic. So um, it, it's just another way in which plastics are massively damaging our world. Um, and it's one of these uh, I feel a bit like, I feel, I really have a new sense of appreciation for how frustrating it must be to be a climate scientist. You know, for 40 years I've been screaming into the void that we are, go, we are killing this planet and nothing has happened. Um, and I feel, I now feel like I'm one of them when I'm talking about this plastics issue. Um, it feels like we are moving way too slowly and by the time we respond properly, um, the oceans are just going to be irreparably full of plastic. So, so what do we do here? I mean, you've mentioned it's everywhere. It's in our food packaging. It's in clothing. It's in carpet. It's in blankets. It's in the ocean. Like, do we do we need political intervention? Do we rely on you know business to become better advocates? <laughs> so, I mean, that's an interesting question, and I think. The thing that will hopefully change the listeners' minds about this, I'm, I, I'm sure what they're probably thinking is we need to act as, as, as human beings, as part of society, we need to start uh, buying glass, uh, drink bottles of water and glass or reusing water or metal straws, this kind of thing. Um, but I would want to warn against that. So first of all, when the plastic pollution became a bit of an issue, um, companies like Coca-Cola figured this out and they said, oh, people are going to be coming for us very soon. So what they did was they actually funded um, anti-litter campaigns in America and New Zealand and Australia and throughout the world. And, um, and so they said, you know, tidy Kiwi, right? Um, so they funded these campaigns to shift the responsibility of pollution from them onto the society at large, the human beings. So, you know, the, the crying Indian uh, campaign, that guy was actually Italian, um, but it was funded by, which is, you know, another terrible thing, but it was funded by Coca-Cola to sort of push uh, the focus away from this company that is just 
needlessly producing tons of single-use plastic every day just for no reason at all. They used to use glass bottles and they used to wash those glass bottles and they used to refill those glass bottles, but they realized that they were paying for that. So now if they make a plastic bottle, the city councils and the governments have to pay to deal with that plastic, not them. So they get to shift the cost onto the governments rather than them paying to wash their own bodies and re bottles and recollect them. So they wanted to use plastic, it's cheaper for them, it shifts the cost onto the government, yeah, yay, that's all a win for private business. But now we're going to get blamed for the litter, so let's shift the blame onto the individual. So I think another great example of this is if you look at the pandemic, right, we all stopped driving to work, we stopped flying, we stopped everything we could to reduce our CO2 emissions. And studies came out saying a place like California had a 9% decrease in global war, in, in CO2 emissions, right? So uh, individuals, society was doing everything they could. They stopped driving, they stayed at home, they didn't fly, they did everything that they could to reduce CO2 emissions and it barely made a dent on CO2 emissions. What we need is systemic change, which is driven through policy. It's the only thing that's really gonna make an impact on global warming and it's the only thing that's gonna make an impact on plastic, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm just letting it sink in because it's it's so true. There's there's a lot of that greenwashing that that happens, um, you know. And like you say, that the, the crying Indian. Um, I'm actually while you were saying the story, I'm trying to look back. It's it's one of the books, Emma, that that I've read recently, and we can recommend it to our to our listeners. Where the author makes reference to that through so using so many examples of that effect, where mm. we're asking for change, yet. It's just shifting onto us. It's like, but well, hang on, <laughs> why is it my problem now? You know, and, get and if the I don't, happy. and if yeah. I don't take my plastic bottle to a recycling uh, plant, then that's my my fault. You know, I'm the one that's let that that you know. So, yeah. what can we do to be more aware of it? You know, we're having this conversation, which is great. It'll reach out a few mm -hmm. listeners, but what can we actually do, uh, other than change, to increase awareness? of of like you say you know instead of of garments why don't we just label them as plastic you know why yeah. why aren't we being more direct more honest with what we're actually uh producing what we're actually consuming why yeah. what do we need to do to be more aware of of this issue um that's a great point i just want to stop because you know how you pause for a bit there and you didn't know what to say that's a thing that we call eco grief and it's when you you almost feel sorrow and helplessness, and I totally appreciate you just pausing and going, I, I don't know how to take this information on board because is there anything we can do about it? So in terms of awareness, I do love this plastic idea. Like, I, so I was a plastic expert, and I went out to Lord, Lord Howe Island to research plastic exposure in birds, and we had some volunteers come out and help us, and they were amazing, and they had lived with plastic um, and been cleaning up beaches their whole lives, that kind of thing. And I was chewing some chewing gum, and they said, you know, that's plastic. And I said, what? And the chewing gum I was chewing was made of plastic. But if you to get that information, you have to dive so incredibly deep because they get away with calling it gum-based. And then you go into the gum-based, and then you go into more details, and then you find out it's polyvinyl acetate, or PVA. So um, it is actually plastic that you're chewing on. And so I think clear labeling is a number one, is a huge thing when it comes to it. Like if we stopped calling it these Gore-Tex, you know, it's not Gore-Tex, it's plastic, okay? Can we, can we start calling 
calling a spade a spade to raise awareness for it. Um, and you mentioned, you know, activewear, lycra and stuff like that. And this is another thing while I do think personal decisions are important, we need to be careful about it because cheaper clothing is made of plastic and cheaper food is wrapped in plastic and people are financially absolutely stretched, right? Huge swathes of the population financially stretched. Making green choices is expensive and that shouldn't be the case, right? So that's another way the government needs to intervene is to make green healthy choices cheaper than expensive um, sorry, yeah, yeah, make green healthy choices cheaper than unhealthy and bad for the environment choices. So financial incentives is a huge thing that the government needs to be doing, but also clear labelling, I think, is, is massive. And then you talk about the financial constraints and, you know, that, that a lot, that's what's cheaper is in plastic. But then there's the flip side, there's the feel good factor that, oh, but this is made from recycled plastic these shoes are, are recycled yeah. plastic or this bag or so on the flip side we're also prepared to pay more money because oh i'm doing good yeah <laughs> you know i'm 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 removing 20 bottles from the ocean to make this pair of shoes yeah i I'd, I'd be really careful about that <clears throat> because so i mean adidas is going down that route of of being 100 recycled bottles for, for i mean shoes so in some respects, it's a good thing, but it doesn't solve the microplastic pollution problem. And it doesn't, because every time it goes around the recycling loop, it's going to be leaking plastics out into the ocean. And so a really good example is a single garment going through the washing machine when it's brand new, releases about 6,000 microplastics. So just a single sweatshirt, for example. And it, what we're finding is that might even be a higher value for recycled plastics. So. Uh, through the recycling process, plastic loses some of its good properties, um, like being resistant to breakage. Um, and so we can end up with crumbly plastics that release more plastics. And a really good example of that is um, there's plastic cladding, recycled plastic cladding for your house, plastic decking, plastic bollards. And um, city councils and, and, and countries are jumping on board going, look, we made an entire wharf out of recycled plastic. And then you come back three years later, the UV sun, the wind and the ocean have eroded that wharf and now it is breaking and crumbling back into the ocean. And so, uh, I think people think recycling is the solution. What we're now realizing is most plastics aren't recycled. Um, a good chunk of plastics we thought we were recycling were getting sent off to developed nations to be burnt, um, to create electricity, or just to be burnt to get rid of it. Um, and so China has since banned that, and they didn't ban it because they were concerned about greenhouse gases. They banned it because um, Beijing was getting so smoggy that they were having inside days where they were forcing people to not go outside because it was acutely, so acutely bad for your health because the factories burning the recycled plastic sent from Western nations were making it so bad to go outside that they were ordered to stay inside. And actually, weird side note, it caused Rogue One, the Star Wars movie, to flop <laughs> because um, they intentionally put a, a major Chinese actor into that movie, the guy that says, I am the force, the force is with me, to make it successful in China. But when they released it in China, there was such a pollution problem going on from burning recycling that no one could go outside to go to the movies. And so it flopped in China, causing a huge disappointment to Disney. Um, but they've got enough money, so I don't feel too bad for them. Um, but yeah, so... 
you, you put it in the recycling bin, you think, yeah, yeah, I've done my job. Most of it's probably going landfill. A huge chunk of it's getting burnt. The stuff that's recycling is going to go back round and leak a huge amount. So that anything, you know, say it gets recycled into another plastic bottle. That plastic bottle will probably get burnt or get put in the rubbish or ended up in the ocean or it will leak microplastics. So recycling is really a greenwashing campaign to say we're dealing with the problem to make us feel better. But the abs- when you think about the three R's, re- reduce, reuse, recycle, recycle was third for a reason. Yep. We need to reduce and reuse first. Um, and that is definitely what we need to be pushing for. And we need to be subsidizing the washing of bottles rather than uh, plastic bottles and this kind of thing. We need to be setting up an infrastructure where we reuse everything and we reduce our impact as well. Yeah, so six R's of sustainability, refuse, reduce. Oh yeah, I like that one. <laughs> Which makes it fourth. Yeah, <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, no, it's it it really makes me rethink. Um, for instance, uh, oh, in Australia is the same the Red Cycle mm. program, um, but here with the soft soft plastics, you know, it's kind of it is greenwashing. You're right. It's that feel good that look, there's some soft plastic I'm still consuming, frozen berries, etc. You know that that yeah. still comes into the household. So I collect it all, I drop it off, and I know we actually had a podcast on this. Um, you know, there's these businesses that recycle that into fence posts, which you've mentioned, park yeah. benches and all that. But now you're right, it does degrade over time. The quality does reduce. And also sometimes certain colors of plastic can't be recycled. It's usually the clears. I mean, we're talking about hard plastics. Um, so it isn't it isn't the long term solution. That, that, mm. That's that we've got to be careful with that. You know, if we've got plastic circulating now, what can we do with it? But we've got to go to the root of the problem, and that is stop manufacturing it. Stop, stop. You know, and Emma and I were actually talking just the other day because we've got some some garments we're going to be offering. You know, some t shirts and some branded stuff. And and I said, oh, well, these hoodies are twenty percent polyester. Yeah, you know, or, or because, but it'll improve the wear rather than one hundred percent cotton. But now it's making me rethink for that 20%. <laughs> do I want to wear that, that bit of plastic on me rather than a natural fiber like yeah. linen, cotton, et cetera? So there's a lot to think about here. Um, I know. So, that, yeah. that, that complexity is another reason why we need systemic change rather than individual change. Like you, you might think um, getting an organic cotton tote bag is better for the environment than getting a plastic bag. But there's a lot of research that suggests that in many ways it isn't. And so it becomes super complicated. And if we can get the research and have data-driven policy change, then that reduces that complexity. Like you mentioned frozen berries, right? This is a really good example. If you take lettuce and you wrap it in a thin plastic, it lasts a lot longer. And so you're reducing food waste by producing this little bit of plastic. And so now it becomes hugely complicated. What's worse, a little bit of plastic or much more food waste? Um, It's it's become such a complicated issue, which is why we need data-driven policy changes where scientists can do the research to figure out what's the best policy, best path forward to take the complexity out of the individual person who's just trying to get by. They're just trying to get to work and buy pasta. You know, (laughs) you make the decisions. Like, it's too hard. Life is hard enough without having to Without going down this rabbit hole too too much deeper, it's, you know, I'm actually personally okay with some plastic on cucumbers and lettuce because it'll improve the longevity, but you don't need plastic to individually wrap 
capsicums or pep, bell peppers, as you or call them there, or, or, or banana. You know, they, they, you know if, if, if it's just the lettuce and cucumber and maybe one other produce to help improve. I know at our supermarket, they tried with silver beet. They tried it. They had them with not, not plastic. They're spraying the water. It looked horrible. Who wants to buy that? They've gone back to plastic. And now it looks fresh, crispy, like you say, less food waste. So I think, you know, we're focusing on individual things when there's the bigger picture. And if you go down those dry food aisles of, you know, ultra processed foods, that's 100% in plastic. If it's in tins, it's aligned with plastic, it's plastics everywhere. And I think if we look at the bigger picture, and if we go back to one of your very earlier points, if you focus on good, wholesome nutrition, you'll realize that ultra processed foods is out. That means you're reducing a big percentage of plastic. Who cares about a little bit of plastic on lettuce to get it home and enjoy for three, four days and you're getting some greens, you know, or kale Mm. or whatever. So, okay, back out of this hole. (laughs) Um, let's 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 look a little bit uh, broader now. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure you've got some future studies coming up, but also I've noticed you you're involved with a drift lab. So drift one word A D R I F T. We'll put a link on that as well. But a drift lab. Tell us a little bit about what this group organisation does um, and, and what you hope to achieve with it. I mean, I'm a recent addition to this lab and I'm so lucky that they took me under their wing. I'm sure they'll love that term because they are bird experts. Um, It's pioneered by two main people, Alex Bond, who works for the Natural History Museum in the UK, and Jennifer Lavers, who works at University of Tasmania here. And their main drive is to um, essentially help wildlife and help our understanding of what's going on in wildlife with the environmental effects that are going on with what humans are doing. They do look at plastic and they look at how plastic is killing um, wildlife all throughout the world, but they also look at global warming and they look at a number of other factors to really understand the problems that are going on. Um, They've just published a paper actually where they've been studying a colony of mutton birds for 13 years and they have seen the plastic rates in these birds so these birds accidentally eat plastic um, they're very sort of gregarious and they and they like to just eat whatever on the surface of the ocean because that used to be a good strategy um, as, as an animal um, but now they are filling up with plastic and so um uh, they've quantified how the colony is dying off, um, how their body weights are declining, how they are filling up with hundreds of pieces of plastic. And I went with them um, just this year to visit the colony. And so th- they are mostly ecologists, right? So they mostly look at um, the numbers of animals, the weights of the animals, the health of the animal. I am mostly a medical researcher and I look at the physiological things that go on inside the body. They, um, so these birds, it's the saddest thing. Honestly, it was, it was moral, it was just crushing. It was soul crushing, this experience. These birds, they get fed for 90 days after hatching, and then they take flight and they fly for five years, occasionally stopping on the water, but they fly for five years while they eat, and then they come back to breed. So they leave their burrow and they know what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go fly for five years, but they are so full of plastic and so malnourished that they can't take flight. And so we would go out in the morning and we would see crawl marks in the sand towards the ocean, um, and they would make it to the, they would make it to the ocean, and um, they would get washed up, 
And then we would find them just looking out at the horizon, knowing that that's where they're supposed to go. Yeah, and we would just collect them and we would humanely kill them because otherwise they get eaten by crabs slowly alive whilst looking out in the ocean knowing where they're supposed to go. And we opened up the, the first bird um, to count the plastic in the stomach and there was over 100 pieces. And um, I just looked at the stomach and I said, that is massively inflamed. And they said, what? How do you know? And I can spot inflammation a mile away because I've seen it in every, in, in, in every study I've ever done. And so uh, we went about quantifying the inflammation going on. And so that's some of the research we're going into now. And um, it's, it's, it's ethical to understand what's going on in those birds. And it also helps us inform us, you know, on a molecular scale. So we do, we do histological sections. So we take really thin slices, put them on glass slides. If you look at a glass slide of a bird's liver and a glass slide of our liver, you cannot tell the difference. We're all just made of the same. We're like Lego. We're just built from the same bricks, right? Um, So what's going on in these birds is likely going on on us, probably in a slightly lower scale because these birds eat so much plastic. Um, But it's going to help inform um, us about what's going on in the wildlife and what's going on in the humans um, who are exposed to these plastics and they were just massively inflamed and what was interesting is these birds also eat pumice they eat pumice rock and they do that to help them grind up the squid that they eat so they have these uh, pumice sitting in their stomach and every now and then um, a bird would get hit by a car and get brought in and so this would be an interesting healthy control it's not full of plastic it's just a healthy bird that happened to get hit by a car which is really unfortunate and we would look in their stomach their stomach would be full of pumice which is a hard rocky substance but their stomach would not be inflamed their stomach would be perfectly healthy and so that tells us that it's not just a physical thing that this plastic is doing to the stomach it's actually somehow there's something unique about the plastic that is making it exceptionally inflammatory and it's not just that it's a physical object in the stomach which was a really interesting finding from the study Um, but yeah, so this is what the Drift Lab does. Is they and I don't know they are the, um, Alex and Jean are the strongest people I have ever met in my entire life, because they essentially go around the world documenting how how terrible it is, how all these species are dying because of plastic exposure. Um, and actually, <clears throat> one thing I, I do want to say is um, I'm a scientist, and I used to I used to talk down to art. I was like, what does art really do? I mean, all we need is Marvel movies, and that's about it, right? That's great. Um, but the Adrift Lab is also, they work with um, indigenous people, and they work with artists to raise awareness for this issue. And I've got to say, it totally made me realize the value of art. You guys mentioned those bird carcasses full of plastic. There was a photographer, mm-hmm. and that was a piece of art. And it has gone around the world, those photos, of how much plastic are in those uh, lace and albatross. Um, and so art is one of those, you mentioned about awareness. Art is one of the major things to make awareness. Science is terrible at it. You know, science eradicated polio and smallpox with vaccines. And now we're struggling to get people to take this next vaccine that seems like a blooming miracle that can end the pandemic. We are such bad communicators. We could be winning so well. Like everyone's on their smartphone invented by scientists complaining about scientists. It's like we're the worst communicators in the world. And we need art 
artists on board because they think art like there are beautiful New Zealand cartoons I can't remember the name of the cartoonist um, and he, he makes these cartoons about the importance of vaccines and um, um, uh, and it, sort of all sorts of political ideas and stuff like that he is a better communicator than the scientists are and so I, I'm really sorry for forgetting his name um, but yeah so one of the things the Adrift Lab does is they really engage the artistic community and the indigenous community to raise awareness on these issues going yeah, on. Yeah absolutely I um, the first time I came across Jennifer's work was actually after watching uh, the documentary Blue um, mm. and you're right it's absolutely horrific what these poor birds have to go through it's really heartbreaking so if anyone wants to find out more i'd highly recommend watching blue or a plastic ocean or i think drowning in plastic might be the other documentary but yeah really important yeah. to actually get that message out there and and convey it to the world um and on that i mean you're pretty much a master communicator i think your um, <laughs> students would probably love having you as a lecturer um You've got a brilliant website as well. So how can we kind of keep up to date with all of your research? Um, so I have a Twitter. It's called uh, MiaConjecture.com. Uh, sorry, Mia, Mia underscore Conjecture is my uh, uh, Twitter account. And you can definitely follow me on there. And I have a website. It's called JackAuty.com. That's J-A-C-K-A-U-T-Y.com. And it has lots of stuff about the research that I do. And it has... Um, uh, how to contact me and it has blogs um, it has some stuff about how to do statistics and it's got some of my videos I make lots of videos if you want to check me out on YouTube as well um, just as Jack R. Orty on YouTube um, and I cover lots of stuff from uh, uh, philosophy to how do vaccines work and this kind of stuff so you can check me out on any of those places. A lot of very very relevant topics. Um, Dr. Jack Orty this has been a very uh I don't want to say entertaining because, well, we should, because it has been um, in, in, in a good sense because it's been very engaging. Um, but more importantly, you've you've really brought to light so many facets of topics that we, we generally glaze very sort of superficially at. You know, plastic. Plastic's bad for you. Okay, do your best to reduce it. But, you know, given us a deeper understanding of, of the impact plastic has and and I think what's also important is the appreciation you have shown us in this uh, conversation about what scientists like yourselves not only do, but what you experience. And it's what some of your experiences are things we hopefully will never experience. Some some of the the awful sites that that we that you know we know are out there, but we don't we don't see it. So out of sight, out of mind, and, and it's easy to not really be consumed with it when we're making life choices on the daily with what we consume and so on. So I want to thank you for that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been a fantastic, I'm going to call this a lesson. I've learned an incredible amount, and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. Uh, it's been, like I've said, super engaging, and the work you've done is tremendous. And, you know, we hope to, to keep in touch and bring you back on again in the future when, when you release some more fascinating research so thank you so much for your time we really really do appreciate it thank you very much ben and emma and i'd love to come on i do have an exciting topic in the works that i could come and chat to you about thank you for listening to the lentil intervention podcast make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and visit the website for more details